You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. If you would please open your Bibles to the book of Psalms and remain standing if you are able. Our reading today will be from Psalm 132. A Song of Ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jer. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the Bible, in part, is intended to give us a testimony that goes beyond our own experience. A testimony that is far more vast than our own testimony or witness. But the problem is, that, at least for a lot of us, we often draw only from our own very limited experience. And we say things like, you know, that's not the way I like to think of God. Or we'll say things like, you know, the way that I experience God is like this. Or we say things like, that, that's weird. I don't, I don't know. My, my God would never do something like that. And so when something new or, or something unexpected or something even devastating comes into our lives and disrupts our normal, then we have no reference point. We are immediately disoriented. And so to navigate this journey faithfully and really to be those who persevere to the end requires that we see our lives as a part of a story that is much bigger than our own story with a history that goes way beyond our own history, way beyond our own limited experience. A philosopher named Alistair McIntyre once said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do with my life, if I answer the previous question, of what story am I a part of? I can't make sense of my life. I can't make sense of my circumstances or my future or even my own faith unless I understand the story that I'm a part of. And that's a question I want to pose to you this morning, do you, are you aware of your story? Are you aware of your history? And God's people, generation after generation, have oriented themselves around the story of God, 
or as theologians call it, redemptive history. What is my story? What is your story? Well, if you're a believer, it's the, it's the story of God's creation, of fall, of redemption, and restoration through Jesus Christ. And what Psalm 132 is doing is reminding us that this journey of faith is a well-worn path. Faithful feet have walked on this very same path that you are walking on now. In fact, in the Old Testament, through the prophet Jeremiah, God speaks to his people in a moment where they are lost and in danger and totally spiritually disoriented. And the Lord says this in Jeremiah 6, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. And so what this means is it's not about you going your own way. It's not about you charting your path. It's not about you defining your destiny. This is what life is about. It's about stepping onto the ancient paths of faithfulness and discovering, as God promises, rest for your weary soul on the ancient paths. And so the psalmist begins by telling us the story of a famous biblical figure named David. King David. And this is very much biblical history, but in verse 6 and 7, something strange happens. Something strange occurs in some of the tense of the words here. And what the Bible does is invites the believing community to make biblical history our history. Look with me again in verses 6 and 7. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it, speaking of the ark, in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. You know what's strange about this is this song and this psalm has been sung by countless generation after generation after generation of people that weren't actually there. But we're there. See, when we recite these and, and psalms like this one where there's we's and the us's. This is not just us recounting dry, dead biblical history or reciting biblical literature. This is, or literature, this is us reenacting our story. Every time we say us, every time we say we, as is laid out in the scriptures, we are reenacting our story. And as we see here, this is a story where first God is central, where God goes before us, and God keeps his promise. So let's look first at this first part of our story is that God is central. God is central. Now, as the pilgrims of faith sang this song, they would be remembering the process of the Ark of the Covenant being brought up from Jerusalem. This is a major theme in this Psalm 132, the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem and after it had fallen into the hands of Israel's enemies, the Philistines, and the ark had almost been completely forgotten by many of God's people. But 2 Samuel tells the story of David and his soldiers traveling to the far reaches of Judah's border in order to bring the ark home. And this was very significant for God's people because the ark represented the presence of God. And where the ark rested, or where God's presence resided, there was blessing in that place. And while the kings of history would often try to manipulate God's 
presence or even try to leverage God's presence for political or military victory, we, so, we see something different in the life of David. David's agonizing to make, uh, you know, to bring the ark home to Jerusalem and his desire to, to build God a temple was about making God center again, central again, and God's people being centered around God. In 1914, I believe it's about two years after the sinking of the Titanic, there was another devastating sinking uh, off the coast of Virginia in the cold, foggy night in the Atlantic Ocean. And a steamboat named the Monroe was rammed by this large freight ship named the Nantucket, and 40 people died, and both ships sank. But both of the captains ended up surviving, and they were questioned in maritime court, and during this cross-examination, the court discovered that the captain of the steamboat had been operating with a compass that deviated about two degrees. Not 90, not 180, two degrees off. And he had held the opinion that this was perfectly acceptable, that this was sufficient to navigate in the waters until he found out the very painful way that it simply wasn't. And the news articles, the headlines read like this, Monroe steered by faulty compass. Think about that statement, Monroe steered by faulty compass. The boat was not destroyed because there was an issue with the boat. The boat was not destroyed because of the engine or the crew or their will to get there, but because their compass was simply off just two degrees. It was an issue of direction. And a compass only works when it is aligned with its true north, when it is centered. And, and here's my application for us today. I would say that a lot of our collisions in life, whether that's collisions with other people or simply collisions with ourselves, is often the result of a faulty compass. Our hearts are out of alignment. We're no longer centered on our true north. In the Proverbs, we're told... Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. But the believer knows that this is only possible when we apply something that we're told elsewhere in the Psalms. As the psalmist says, I have set the Lord always before me. In other words, I have centered my life on him. This is how we avoid going to the right or to the left and swerving into evil, keeping ourselves centered on God. And Psalm 132 is a psalm of realignment a song that centers the believing community around the life-giving presence of God once again. I can only speak for myself, but my heart is constantly coming out of alignment. I'm constantly being drawn towards other things. I'm constantly needing to be reoriented. And the way that the Lord does this, listen, is through worship. As, as, as verse 7 describes, as we gather to worship the Lord at his footstool. As one author put it, worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts. As we sing and we glorify God, God, we're not just doing something for God. God is doing something in us. And as the Hebrew people would journey to Jerusalem to worship, similar to how we, the Christian community, commit to gathering together to worship every single week. It was, and it continues to be, an intentional aligning of our lives with God's kingdom. And weeks like the week that we just had as a people, as a community, as a nation, 
We need to be realigned with God's kingdom once again. Why are we here? I, I hope you ask that once in a while. Like, why do we keep showing up? Here's my simple answer. To be centered. To be centered. Right now, whether you recognize it or not, we are choosing to abide where God abides. We are choosing to gather where the Lord desires to be, not in a golden ark, not in a vast temple, but with his people. And we are living out the reality right now that God is central, that God is center of the universe and God is center of my life, that he is the source of blessing, that he is the source of provision, that he is the source of satisfaction, that he is the source of joy. Amen? Now, the second truth about the story that we are a part of as believers is that God goes before us. God goes before us. Now, as a kid, I was a huge Michael Jackson fan. And this was obviously before I knew any of the speculation and some of the accusations about his personal life. All I knew was Michael Jackson was the king of pop. I mean, he was the man. And everyone wanted to be him. And so when I was in middle school, I had the opportunity to visit Neverland Ranch. And by the opportunity to visit Neverland Ranch, I mean I got to stand outside of the front gate and marvel, which in hindsight was probably the safest place for me to be. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, Michael Jackson traveled this road right here. Maybe he just like did like a moonwalk in or something. Michael Jackson has gone on this path. And it was almost like I worshiped the ground that he had walked on or like driven in a limousine upon. And there was something significant for that moment. Like this person that I heard of, this person that I'd seen, this person I'd listened to his music for years, I got to see where he traveled. There was something significant in that. Now, as the pilgrims of faith made the difficult journey to Jerusalem, which now, by the way, represents our journey of following Jesus Christ, they would travel the paths of the believers before them. As I mentioned earlier, these were well worn paths. But what gave the travelers hope and really caused these men and women to sing for joy was not simply that other people had gone before them, but the reality that the one and only presence of God, the living God, had gone before them. As they sang this song, what they were doing is they're stirring their imagination and envisioning the journey of the Ark of the Covenant actually traveling on the same dusty roads that they were traveling into Jerusalem. In fact, when they sing in verse 8, Arise, O Lord, arise, O Lord. These aren't just, this is not just a trivial statement. This is the statement. They are repeating the words that Moses would declare every single time the Ark of the Covenant would come up and move in the wilderness. Moses would stand before the people and say, Arise, O Lord, go before us, conquer our enemies. And now the children of Israel are saying the same thing, remembering that the Lord goes before us. Now, there are scenes in movies and, and books where there's the main character. They come to an important juncture, and they must proceed on their own. They, they realize that they have to chart their own path. It's the portion of you know, what's known as the hero's quest, where they have to go where no man has ever gone before. Friend, that is not our story. That may be the myths of, 
of times before us, but that is not the story of the Christian. Our journey of faith is a story where God has gone before us. And for the believer, there are no uncharted paths. The moment that you think that no one knows what I'm experiencing right now, you have to confront that lie. The Lord has gone before you. You are not a trailblazer in faith. You are walking on well-worn paths where the very feet of Jesus Christ has traveled. And not just gone before you, but prevailed before you. And the book of Hebrews is constantly trying to remind the church Jesus has been there. Jesus was tempted and he prevailed. Jesus suffered and yet without sin. Jesus was made like the brothers and sisters so that he could become our sympathetic, faithful high priest. Jesus has gone before you. And so how do we apply this? When we step out to, in faith to obey the Lord, even in the midst of pressure and temptation, and we're feeling defeated, we simply follow the footsteps of Jesus into the wilderness where he traveled to be tempted for 40 days and prevailed with the confidence that the Lord goes before us. And when we descend into seasons of suffering and we get knocked down to the ground, we simply open our eyes and we see the knee prints in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus agonized. And we remember that the Lord goes before us. And when we experience the pain of rejection and loneliness, we look down and we see all of the scattering footprints of the disciples as they left Jesus, and yet we see the unswerving path that Jesus made from the garden to the council. And when we eventually face the great terror of our own death and our own mortality, we retrace the faithful steps of the Via Dolorosa, the path to Calvary, where Jesus faced death head on so that we could live eternally. And when we are disillusioned in our faith and it seems like all hope is lost, we hear the voice of the, our, the angel reminding the disciples, look, the risen and living Jesus goes before you to Galilee just as he told you he would. Our hope in life and in death is that Jesus goes before us, that God's presence goes before us, and that there are no uncharted paths for the believer. Amen? One more point. The third truth about our story is that God keeps his promise. God is a faithful, promise-keeping God. I want you to notice something. The psalm begins with the believing community asking God to remember David. Did you see that? God, look, look at what David did. His vows of commitment to God, the pain, uh, staking sacrifice, seeking God a home. To, it, it really, like much of our religion, it focuses on what David did for God. But more importantly, the psalm concludes with what God did for the believing community. And reminding the believing community to focus on what God does for us. And what this reminds us of is that this faith is not quid pro quo. This is not God who meets us in the middle. We do a little bit for God and God does a little bit for us. Christianity isn't ultimately based on what we do for God, but what God has done for us. Faith is trusting in his actions, not our own. Faith is trusting in his faithfulness, not our own. Faith is trusting in his ability and not our own. Faith is trusting in what Christ has finished and accomplished, not what we will set out to do for God. 
And the truth is, I desire to live a life of faithfulness and fidelity and self-sacrifice for the Lord. I want to make vows for the Lord. I want to be a promise keeper for the Lord. And I hope you do too. But Psalm 132 reminds me that what supports my relationship with God is not my promise-keeping ability, but his. This is what supports us. See, the interesting thing is that David was busy trying to find God a perishable home. He was promising, God, I'm not going to rest until I build you a home. Guess what? Never ended up accomplishing that. And all the while, God was building David an eternal legacy, a, a, a kingdom and a throne that will never end. It begins with David making a vow to God, but look with me in verse 11. It says that the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. And this is it. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, then their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. What we need to remember is that our commitment to God is often going to waver. But only God's commitment to, to us is considered a sure oath. A sure oath, a steady oath, a faithful oath. And the fact of the matter is that David and every single one of his sons, all of the future kings of Israel and Judah, failed to uphold their side of the bargain. They failed in this deal. And yet God sent his son Jesus Christ born into the lineage of David. This is what's going to make sense of things that we sing in our Christmas songs like the root of Jesse and the son of David. God sends Jesus into the royal lineage of David to fulfill the deal and to live the life of faithfulness that was required in order to usher in the abundance of blessings that were being promised here. See, God's covenants have conditions. He promises blessing for the righteous and curse for the unrighteous. And we, by our sin, have forfeited every single one of God's blessings. And yet the gospel tells us that God holds up both his end and our end of the bargain. And through faith, he clothes us in righteousness. Or as it says here, in faith, he clothes us in his salvation. So that when we stand before the Lord, it is not, look at all that I have done for you, God. It is simply this, God, look at all that your son has done for me. In his righteousness, in his salvation. And what this means is that all that is true of this anointed son that fulfilled the covenant becomes true of us. A horn will sprout for me, which means God's strength will protect me and empower me. There's a lamp prepared for me which means that even in my darkest moment, God's light is going to lead me. And there is even a crown that awaits me when we shall rule and reign with Jesus. In fact, he promises the church in Revelation 3, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That is what awaits those who trust in Jesus. So I want to conclude with this. This has been a historic week. I don't know if you knew this, but there was a presidential, uh, what do they call it, election this last week? Did you, did you catch that? And, you know, there was tension about counting the uh, electoral votes and claims of voter fraud. There, it was just kind of a, a tense week. And 
I think what it's revealed, among many things, it's really revealed what people are very passionate about. And I think for some, it's revealed where our hope lies. The needle of the compass of our hearts have been pulled quite literally and figuratively to the left or to the right. And I woke up this morning and I looked at this passage one last time and one, 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 uh, one verse just jumped out at me. It's found in verse 11. It says, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is a prophecy that is about Jesus, King Jesus. And this, I want to remind us as a church that this, this one single quick statement is where we rest our hope now and forever. Not in the broken legacies of politicians, but in the faithful throne of Jesus Christ. And my guess is, I don't know, I can't speak for you, but my guess is that your heart, like mine, needs to be realigned again today. We need to be recentered. It's been pulled, as I mentioned, quite literally and figuratively, to the left and to the right. And so what I did was I wrote down a, a short corporate prayer that I want to pray over us today. And I want to remind you, first and foremost, about prayer. Get this. One vote gets you, your, you know, your one vote gets thrown into a sea of votes that becomes red or blue. But one prayer summons the entire attention of heaven. Do you know that? One prayer summons everything in heaven stops to listen. And so this is my prayer for you. If you would just kind of bow your head, close your eyes, and I want to pray this over us as a church and as we conclude. Lord, may the passion that we have displayed for a person holding a four-year term be far exceeded by our passion for the son of David who sits on the throne forever, who truly keeps his promises. God, we cast a vote every few years. But our daily prayer to you is the same, O oh Lord. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.